2: Hi, I'm Rachel, and on today's News it podcast, I'm talking to former Conservative MP and one-time candidate for the Conservative leadership, Rory Stewart. Well, Rory, thank you so much for joining us, especially as I know you've been travelling. You're currently in, in Boston. There's been a a bit of news over the last week in terms of politics that I would absolutely love to, to get your thoughts on a bit later. But first, most importantly, in addition to the podcast that you already have, Rest is Politics, you've got a new BBC Radio 4 series coming out next week called The Long History of Argument, which is all about how we argue and why and how we can argue better. Arguing, what, what could possibly have been the inspiration for
1: that? Well, as you're implying, we live in an incredibly argumentative age. I think it's part of living in an age broadly of populism. Something changed in the world about 2014, 2016. And that was the moment where Trump begins to emerge in America, where the Brexit referendum happens, where Bolsonaro is elected in Brazil, where Narendra Motri takes over in India, where a new populist government comes in, in Poland, and we enter a world of incredibly divisive forms of argument, and argument which, at its worst, drives us apart rather than bringing us together. And this show is about where that moment came from, and it's some ideas on what we could do to repair it, because I think arguing well is absolutely vital to our future.
2: Well, I've only listened to episode one. It's reviewed, by the way, in this week's edition of The New Statesman and available online. I loved it. I love how fun and eclectic it is. You've got Cicero and Aristotle there interspersed with Barack Obama and Trump and the rapper Tupac, I think. It's great fun. But what you mainly touch on in the first episode is this kind of golden age of arguing where it was all about understanding and empathising with your opponents, even if you didn't necessarily agree. Do you think that's something that we've lost? And if so, is it all about Twitter and social media or is something else going on?
1: So I definitely think we have lost something. I we can't over-romanticise the past. Of course, there were uh, in ancient Rome and ancient Greece, there were some terrible politicians, just as there are today. But I think there is a difference, which is that people in the past in these sorts of parliaments, like the Roman Senate, or even the British Parliament the 19th century, were generally talking to each other. You were genuinely speaking, for example, in Parliament across the chamber to the opposition. Nowadays, it feels much more like people are performing, not for the people who are in the chamber with them, but to be overheard in a clip on television or a clip on Twitter. And when that happens, you're no longer really engaging as human being. You're no longer really trying to persuade somebody or being persuaded in turn. And you feel that when you watch debates in Parliament, that actually it isn't really a debate at all. Debate has become a misnomer. You might see a debate, for example, at a school debating competition. But in Parliament, it's just a series of sound bites generally being barked out in the hope that it's going to be picked up.
2: You've done quite well out of social media and Twitter. You've got a bit of a cult following yourself, certainly. Is that something that you try and do to try and widen the debate or to engage in good faith with people here you disagree with on social media? And what happens when you do?
1: So Twitter, Rachel, is a very strange thing. As you say, I have got whatever it is, 430,000 Twitter followers. And there is an awful sense in which the algorithms, that the backend bits of Twitter, which are designed to promote certain posts and take other bits down, create a certain kind of language. They reward you, for example, for being quite angry. And they punish you if you're too subtle. And they begin to train you. It's almost as though you're in a sort of dog training school. You begin to learn, almost subconsciously, what's going to work on Twitter and what isn't. And I think that's unfortunate because it's created a universe where instead of a thoughtful, engaged argument in which we're persuading each other, I'm being tempted to put out two or three sentences, gobbets of rage or contempt or der- and I'm being rewarded by 29,000 people liking it or 4 million people viewing it. So I, I think if we're going to improve things in our democracies, we're going to have to look at the back end of Twitter. We're going to have to actually have discussions with companies like Facebook or Twitter on what we can do so that they're not perpetually rewarding the most angry, hostile state.
2: Are there any politicians in the UK or further afield that mm. you think but are doing arguing right at the moment, or you would look to as examples of people who are resisting the Twitter urge towards ever more extremist echo chamber politics, or does it get everyone in the end?
1: I think it gets most people. Remember, the tendency of our politics from the beginning is to be very partisan. So the tendency of the Conservative Party is to try to characterize everyone in Labour as socialists. And if you're in the Labour Party, basically to think that everyone in the Conservative Party is a sort of Tory scum. Mm-hmm. and it's embedded in the way in which people think about each other and the way in which they campaign. It's much more extreme, of course, in the United States. In the United States, we're almost on the edge of a civil war now. It's very disturbing. Complete lack of empathy and understanding. There are people, I think, who sometimes more thoughtful, but they tend to be people who've retired. There's a lovely guy, Gavin Burwell, who was an MP, who was Theresa May's chief of staff, who you can see on Twitter occasionally quite bravely agreeing with Keir Starmer one day and then agreeing, saying that Boris Johnson did something good the next day. But you can feel when he does so, he's always prefacing it by saying, this is going to get me in trouble. And I've got to explain, I really think Boris Johnson's a terrible prime minister, but... I think what they did in Ukraine, dot 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 dot, and it's fascinating watching someone trying to navigate their way through it. I had an experience recently. I was trying to point out, as I think a lot of people have done, that the there was a lot of diversity, ethnic diversity, in the Tory candidates, these Conservative candidates. But how do you say that on Twitter when I'm aware that most of my followers, the mere mention of the Tory leadership candidates puts them into a boiling rage? So. If I say, isn't it interesting, and can you think of any other democracy in the world that would have such a diverse group of candidates running for the leadership, I'm going to get a very odd response coming back. It won't go down as well as if I say, Boris Johnson is a terrible person.
2: Which is really interesting that you have such an unconservative following, given that a couple of years ago, you were yourself running to be leader of the Conservative Party.
1: Yeah, that is a bit odd. I agree. I don't know quite how that's happened. I think um, occasionally the Twitter wakes up, occasionally you get these things, actually you know, most every day, where someone will be like, wait a second, look at his voting record. This guy's a conservative. And I have to say, that's right. I was a conservative. <laughs> You're looking at the voting record of a conservative MP. But it's interesting that there's this sort of cognitive dissonance. I, I wonder whether if I stayed, I couldn't stay when Boris Johnson was in because I thought he was a bad thing and I wasn't really prepared to serve in his cabinet, I wasn't really prepared to campaign for the 2019 election or vote for the kinds of things he wanted to do. But I still wonder if I had managed to stay, if someone else had become leader, let's say Sajid Javid or Jeremy Hunt or someone had become prime minister, in which case I probably would have stayed, would I have been able to reach across, would I have been able to do what I've always wanted to do, which is to try to bring people together. It's much easier to do as a constituency MP. As a constituency MP, you can get two, three hundred people in a room. If you've got a very concrete local issue, what are we going to do about renewable energy and Kirby-Steven? You can get people doing that, but in national politics, it feels very difficult.
2: And on the subject of Boris Johnson, before we go into who, who might or might not replace him, he's not so much a Twitter or Facebook politician, but he is very much a politician who knows how to argue over the heads of say the, the people who he's directly arguing with and speaks straight to his base. I mean, he, as he likes to remind us, frequently studied classics, classical rhetoric. But I think I'm trying to be fair here. I think it's quite fair to say that some of his rhetoric over the past decade has been divisive, not necessarily all in good faith. Is he driver of this problem, that sort of toxicity in our public discourse? Is he a symptom of it? Would he have been able to become conservative leader in in 2019 if he hadn't been in a landscape where this kind of polarizing rhetoric works well? Is there another universe where he became a sort of great good faith orator that was able to engage with his opponent? Where does he fit into all of this?
1: So Boris Johnson is very strange. As you say, he boasts about having studied classics at university, but he's actually a figure who the classical world would have been horrified by. People like Cicero, it was incredibly important for Romans that their fundamental words that mattered to them were dignitas and gravitas, which broadly means dignity and gravity. And Of course, Boris Johnson has zero dignity or gravity, whatever his merits are he is all about the thing that the Romans really hated, which they called levitas or levity. In other words, he trivializes everything. He turns everything into a joke. And they saw that as a very bad sign because they thought that if you're Cicero, that arguing well, being a good orator, comes from your moral character. That there was a connection between being a good person, being able to argue well, and being able to govern well. These three things connected. And he would say, looking at Boris Johnson, that The way in which Boris Johnson speaks, in particular, his extraordinary sort of evasions and muddles and lies, are also the reason why he was bad at running things, because it stops him being able to think clearly and critically about anything. It's as though he's taken on the mask of being a sort of blundering buffoon. And the hope of his supporters are that when he's in the cabinet room, he can take off that mask of being a blundering buffoon. But in fact, the mask is is contaminated by some sort of acid, which kind of reaches into his mind, his body, soul, and he becomes this mask. So that I found when I was working for him in government, when I was a minister of state in the Foreign Office, that those very same things that we all see on television, the, come on, we do this stuff, the thumbs up stuff, was pretty much how he approached British foreign policy. And it was disastrous. It meant that It wasn't possible to have a serious conversation about what we could not do, what our limits were, what we didn't know, what the risks might be, how we might be able to achieve something, but we'd need to be patient. We'd need to find more money. These kind of things that would be normal to have in a conversation with a boss, you just couldn't have with him because everything had been turned into cartoon. He's, As you say, he's not hardly a great exponent of Twitter or Facebook. He's a one of the last examples of a sort of daytime television politician, he made himself off Top Gear and Have I Got News for You. I suppose that some of those are blockbuster evening shows. But it's, that's the tone of them.
2: Well, you're doing your own small bit to make arguing great again. I imagine with your podcast that you've got with Alistair Campbell, as you admitted a moment ago, people might have forgotten it now, but you are, or at least you were a conservative, Alistair Campbell, obviously architect of, of New Labour, in which the two of you discuss politics and manage to argue quite amicably about, about a lot of things and manage to push in and test each other. I have to say I've bit, very much been enjoying your episodes on the recent conservative psychodrama, shall we say, for I mean, we're recording this on Wednesday, the 13th of July. We've just had another voting round in the Conservative Leadership Contest. Jeremy Hunt and Zid- Nadine Zahawi are out. What thoughts do you have about where the party that you were until very recently hoping to run is at the moment?
1: Well, firstly, I, I am genuinely interested in the fact that we had such a diverse group of candidates and that the default position, or not quite the default, but there was a pretty strong view clearly amongst the Conservative MPs expressed in the candidates came forward that they thought that they would like ideally to have somebody from minority ethnic background and, and potentially a woman. And that's interesting. But it's an interesting aspect of a, as it were, Conservative Party that, as the Conservative Party keeps pointing out, they've had two women as prime ministers, and Labour hasn't yet managed to do that. And it's odd that some of this has to do with the way in which the Conservative Party changed in the period 2005 to 2010 under David Cameron. A lot of these people were recruited then. But it's also been interesting, of course, as people point out in reply to me when I say that kind of thing on Twitter, that many of these candidates are much, much more right-wing, that the Conservative Party has become just factually a more right-wing party. 2017, I think, Well, let's take a classic right-left divide, which might be over Remain-Brexit, for example. 2017, I think something like 65% of the MPs had voted for Remain. By 2018, it was down to about 55%. And then after 2019, going to 2020, the majority were Brexit voters and the minority were Remain. So you can see that and many other signs of a party that is shifting on a lot of these issues shifting on attitudes towards migrants, shifting on cultural war issues. Um, but the real thing at the heart of this race is the question of what their economic policy is. Not anyone to talk about it. Exactly. And this is, this is where you're. because we began, we talked about argument. One of the problems is that we've created a world in which it seems to be possible to get away with not talking about the contents policy, and so much of the conversation obviously is about people's personality, their personal history, their appearance, but not really anybody taking seriously the question of what makes them angry or ashamed about the country, what detailed administration they might try to implement and that's that's in a way maybe representing the fact that actually Sajid Javid, Nadim Zahawi, Jeremy Hunt who've all been knocked out were amongst the most experienced people either running businesses or actually in government positions probably with the best track record on actually doing stuff have haven't made it through
2: Hi it's Anoush here This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12 if you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back.
0: From The New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors including Ian McEwan, on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale.
1: Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display?
0: A year Inside GB News with Stuart McGurk.
1: At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, obvious
0: and Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts.
2: It has been noted that while the current field of candidates is very diverse in terms of ethnicity and gender, as you said, it's not particularly diverse in terms of background. And it's also not particularly diverse in terms of policy or ideology. Um, Lots of Brexiteers, as you say, lots of sort of consensus. It seems to be that the most important things right now are, are cutting taxes and getting involved in the culture wars. Is that just a symptom of how a leadership contest works and what you need to do to win? Or is that symptomatic of how the party's changed and how politics has changed?
1: I think it's symptomatic of how party and politics has changed. I think partly it's structural. So there was a time when the leaders of the Conservative Party were just chosen by Conservative MPs. That was changed. This is the first time that a Prime Minister, sorry, Boris Johnson was the first time and the second time to Prime Minister will actually, as it were, been chosen by the party in the country. Until then, either it was people like Theresa May who came by default, or they were people who'd been elected under a previous system into being leaders of the opposition. But when Mr. Thatcher came in, when John Major came in, they were simply selected by the MPs. And that is a very different type of campaign. You're then trying to appeal to people who've known you for many years generally anybody who comes out as prime minister has been in the party traditionally they would have been in the party 20 20 years or more before they had a chance of really becoming prime minister and now we're in a situation where you're appealing ultimately to just over a hundred thousand quite elderly conservative party members in the country and that means that there is a huge incentive to say what they want to hear so to say for example that you want to cut taxes even if The public finances are shot to pieces even if in fact the pressure is to increase public spending and even if you can't really see where those taxes are going to come from and you're promising to cut the deficit at the same time you end up in that situation can i just come back on something that you said which is i think interesting obviously in britain we're completely obsessed with class and one of the things that you said is that you thought they weren't very diverse in terms of background They are surprisingly diverse in terms of background, because, of course, people who are diverse in terms of ethnicity in Britain generally are from very diverse backgrounds. Almost all those people that we're talking about had parents who came to the United Kingdom with very little money. Some of them there, in the case of Richard Sunak, his father became a GP. But in the case of Priti Patel, I think her father initially set up a shop. Nandam Zahawi arrived with very little. Sajid Javid's father famously was a bus driver people sometimes tease him about saying that a little bit too often, but it's true. I think there is reason to feel that actually a more ethnically diverse group usually means more diversity of backgrounds. It's, it's probably one of the first leadership campaigns for a very long time, whether it's not an Old Etonian running.
2: That's a good point. We had a lot. I had an Old Etonian last time. And Obviously the time before. There have been a few of them. I simply meant in terms of, I imagine, I guess sort of university background and then a career in some kind but, of profession.
1: But again, I, again, I, interestingly, very, I think you'll find if you look at the full initial starting race of 12, very few of them went to Oxford and Cambridge. I think that's another big change. I think that I'm not a sociologist, but I think if you looked at the socioeconomic background of leadership candidates, that is changing quite quickly. But what isn't happening is you're not getting the progressive politics emerging that you would expect. So I, I, teach at Yale University, and I was talking to a student about that, and she had very much been educated to believe that if you had diverse leadership from low-income backgrounds, you would necessarily end up with more progressive policies. And I think that this suggests that may not always be the case.
2: It's interesting that we're down to the final six at the moment, and there is only one white man remaining, who is, interestingly, the candidate from the left of the party, Tom Taylor hat, which is maybe not the state of affairs that you would expect. Obviously, you, you ran uh, about three years ago. I think we all remember you taking off your tie during a debate. And if you would like to share with us what the motivation for that was, that some kind of like secret signal in some way, there were a lot of conspiracy theories about
1: that. I, so, so I can reveal for the first time on, on yeah. your amazing your amazing show that I honestly, it was that I simply couldn't work out walking onto stage whether I wanted to be wearing a tie or not. And so it was total indecision. Initially, I thought, I'm not going to wear a tie for this. And then I wore a tie. And then I thought, oh, but I was right, I should not wear a tie. And I think I was sitting there, I was getting, I'd, by that stage, I'd lost the debate totally. I'd been trying to say, how are you going to be able to get a new Brexit deal without creating a problem in Ireland. How on earth are you going to be able to cut taxes and increase spending and reduce deficit? And I was beginning to rant. I was saying, this is all fantasy land. There is no reality in any of this. And it was somewhere around that moment that I finally thought I'm going to take off my tie. And I think it was a sort of strange kind of subconscious attack on the format.
2: Thank you. That that clears up a lot of conspiracy theories. (laughs) More generally than the tie question, what Insights do you have of what it's like to run in that kind of contest? What are the candidates, the remaining ones, going to be uh, thinking, have running through their heads now? How do you win? What are they going to be well, kind of? Well, I think
1: th- first thing is it's completely exhausting. So you are up all day and night, and therefore you start to make mistakes because you just haven't had enough sleep. You are staring at your phone all the time. You are just desperate to get certain individuals on board. So there will be quite quickly be a situation where two thirds of the MPs have declared and there's about a hundred MPs who haven't yet declared. And you're trying desperately to get those people. And it feels like a body blow when you lose just one of them, because at this stage, they're getting into a knockout round where one or two votes can make the difference whether you're knocked out or not and can completely change your, it's extraordinary how it can completely change your future. In my case, if Sajid Javid had got one vote less in the penultimate round. He would have been knocked out and his votes, many of them may have gone to me, in which case I might have gone into second place against Boris Johnson as I went into that final debate. But in fact, he got just that one vote more. He remained in and the whole dynamic changes. So everything, it's extraordinary. It's a sort of, there are lots of butterfly effects going on. So that's one thing. You're desperately looking at voting voters. You're also desperate to differentiate yourself. For the others, people will keep be asking, why am I voting for you? And that's where you end up with a loss of these slightly bizarre statements where they're projecting themselves as being the person who's going to do this or the person who's going to do that. And often it leads to quite dangerous promises being made to try to attract attention.
2: And in terms of you very much ran as the either anti-Brexit candidate, your detractors would say, or the pragmatic, let's get real a- about Brexit Candidate at the time. Also, let's get real about public spending and things like that. There hasn't really been a candidate kind let's, of saying those things. They're
1: probably less.
2: Le- um, <laughs> I don't know. Who do you think is channeling best that kind of... I guess this is my really roundabout way of saying, who are you endorsing? I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, at the moment,
1: I'm not at the moment endorsing anyone. But And one of the reasons I'm not is that, as you say, I am a bit disappointed by that. I'm a little bit disappointed that people who I think opposed the Rwandan policy, this policy of shipping migrants to Rwanda, are now claiming that they support it. The people who I think are actually quite liberal are pretending to be more conservative that and that that saddens me a little bit because I'm looking for a leader who is prepared to take the risk of being honest. I think once you get in the habit of much of being driven by the effectively, you're being driven by the opinion polls. That what's happening is that people are trying to guess what everyone else wants to hear and deciding they can't say this or they can't say that. I can't possibly say that I'm against shipping people to Rwanda because if I do, I won't win. And I think it's all a bit futile. My guess is that. What I didn't understand at the time, and maybe none of these people understand when you're in the middle of it, is that you think that these things make the difference whether people are supporting you or not. People make the decision on a much more basic, broad brush level. You don't need to make those kind of gestures. People, in the end, voted for Boris Johnson, didn't vote for me, not because of some detailed sense of what his policies were on adult social care or some very strong sense that he would be better at running the cabinet office than I would be. They're doing it on the basis of, I guess, what the Greeks would call charisma. And They're doing it on the basis of bigger impression that a personality makes.
2: Have you changed your mind on anything since you ran? Uh, in, in seeing, for example, how Brexit has played out or how the country has changed?
1: Um, Brexit, no. I mean, I was a, I was obviously somebody who voted Remain and then tried to push very hard for Theresa May's deal, which I saw as a soft Brexit. I still think would have avoided the problems that we now have in Northern Ireland and kept us in a customs union effectively with, the, with Europe, which I think would have been a smart thing to do, particularly when we're running into trouble with China and Russia. What have I changed my mind on? I think I'm much less comfortable now with some bits of austerity. I saw much more directly in prisons, for example, that we'd cut far too many prison officers and the damage that had done. I felt that we were often too timid and slow on decisions that we could have been making around things like air pollution. I felt that we didn't do a good enough job at explaining what we were doing well in international development. And sometimes we weren't good enough at improving the quality of our programs, communicating them. So we could have saved this wonderful department called DFID that I was lucky enough to run, which has now been abolished and merged, which did international development. And I think we, I was particularly, I was wrong to be a very strong supporter of first past the post. I now think that we need proportional representation in order to bring some fresh ideas in.
2: You got kicked out of the parliamentary party by Boris Johnson over Brexit. You then ran as an independent candidate for mayor of London, which obviously got derailed by COVID. Do you still think of yourself as a conservative or as a potential conservative?
1: I'm I'm conservative in the sense that I have a I guess I have a sort of worldview which is believes in prudence at home, restraint abroad, and love of country and tradition. I'm very romantic about small farmers, the military, queen. Walking, stuff. Walking, walking. I love my walking. I'm not very ideological, obviously, but I'm a, I'm quite a kind of old-fashioned type of person. So I think in that sense, I am probably was more comfortable with the Conservative Party. I guess I'm on that sort of traditional kind of evolution side. But I, I, people point out that I often spend a lot of my time sounding like a Lib Dem and probably they're right.
2: And they probably mean that both positively and negatively if it's on Twitter. That's the thing about Twitter, something that's one person's insult is somebody else's compliment. Let's just get back to this relationship race. And OK, you're not going to endorse anyone for very fair reasons. Thank you, by the way, on, on your Restless Politics podcast for mentioning the New Statesman's tracker of who's endorsing who. But my, my colleague Ben Walker was very pleased about that. We do have a, a sort of list of which MPs are siding with who, which might help us make some Predictions going forward. Do you want to share any predictions for, if not who will win, who you think will probably make it to the final two? Well, I would like to
1: pay, as we move towards the end of this interview, I'd like to pay tribute to the new statesman that tracker because I think there's a nice thing about it, which isn't just that it helps you predict who might make it through. It's also a good way of getting an assessment of the moral qualities of the candidate. I tend to feel when I'm looking at these candidates that if people I really admire and respect who I knew, endorsing somebody that's quite a good sign and ditto if i look at the list of people endorsing it think oh my goodness what a bunch of bandits that's a pretty pretty bad sign i'd encourage people if if you know individual mps to have a look at that and think which mps you'd respect or admire and take that as a a reasonable indication on whether the candidate's very good
2: and then finally to bring it all together and go from the Conservative Party leadership race back to your podcast, back to arguing and civic discourse and how we can respect one another while disagreeing. As I said, I've only listened to episode one, but you suggest that you have some answers for how we can detoxify the way we engage with each other and reverse this trend of polarization and arguing in in bad faith, the Boris Johnson effect. So. What can those of us who aren't in politics, or even, if you're listening, people who are in politics, do to make arguing great again if that's what you're trying to achieve?
1: Well, I think there are practical things that you can do that I talk about on this Radio 4 documentary. So I think we could change the algorithms on Twitter and Facebook so that we were less likely to reward people for being really angry and divisive. I think we could change the way that parliament works. I'd like some debates to be held which didn't have television cameras in so people weren't always performing to the cameras. I'd like to make more use of citizens assemblies which are juries of citizens that come together to debate issues more slowly, more thoughtfully without parties present. I'd like people to study debate in school. I was really struck by interviewing a couple of young men from Liverpool, from a comprehensive in Liverpool who'd had an incredibly dedicated teacher who, in her spare time, she'd set up a debate club, and they just felt that it had totally changed the way that they thought. It had made them much more sensitive to other people's arguments, less likely to be bullshitted by politicians, help them to see two sides of every point, to think critically, and turn their lives around. And I think the final thing, I suppose, is to, without being too naff about it, is to prioritize truth that all our communication, all our policy, all our government, everything we do has to keep coming back to truth. That if we're not truthful about things, we're not treating other people with respect. We're misleading them. We're manipulating them. If we're not truthful about things, we're not able to come to rational conclusions. We're not able to understand what's really going on. So truth and reality, I think, are at the core of good argument.
2: That was a wonderful ascending tricolon there.
1: Thank you. Beautiful answer to somebody paying attention to those classical techniques.
2: Rory Stewart, thank you so much. Have a good trip back from Boston and I really hope you find your wedding ring.
1: Thank you very much indeed. If anybody finds a gold ring, looks a bit like a wheel, please be in touch or a reward is off. Thank you all very much. Bye-bye.
2: You've been listening to the New Statesman Podcast with me, Rachel Cunliffe, and our guest, Rory Stewart. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget to tell a friend and leave us a nice review. Our music is Devil With a Devil, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Adrian Bradley. Thanks for listening.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.